Welcome to Connecting the Community podcast. I am your host, Marge Andre. I will be connecting you to people, organizations, and events that create community. I am creating this podcast in Richmond Hill, an eclectic and very culturally diverse community with lots of trees and streams and interesting people just up the hill from Toronto. On this podcast, I'm talking with Kathleen McNackey, friend and a very effective advocate for families dealing with severe mental health issues. We could talk about a lot of things and we're thinking there will be a subsequent podcast. On this podcast, we'll focus our conversation on the lack of resources for those with severe mental illnesses. Welcome, Kathleen. Well, thank you, Marge. It's nice to talk with you. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that we we found a time to do this. Uh, as I said, we could have a very long conversation. We'll, we'll not have a too long one today, but we'll schedule a time to continue this. But Kathleen, let's start. Um, let's tell us a little bit about your background and how you got so involved in this advocacy. Well, I'm a social worker by training, and uh, many years ago, many, many years ago, I was doing my BSW at York University, and uh, I was offered a practicum at the time uh, to work in a community case management agency um, that addressed the needs of people with severe mental illness. This agency was in Sutton, and which is a long way away. I, I would drive up the highway each day. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting the people that were affected by severe mental illness. I um, really respected the struggles that they had. And I was really inspired by um, their success in managing to carve out a life despite all the challenges that they faced. And it was just a very uplifting experience. And I was very um, drawn to the field. So I am a social worker, or have been a social worker in the mental health field. Now, how I got into advocacy was, um, unfortunately, around 2004, uh, my son um, uh, experienced the the signs of a psychotic break. And uh, he was taken to an emergency ward of a downtown teaching hospital. And um, I went there. And I spoke with a nurse and I had seen that obviously uh, he was experiencing uh, a psychotic break. And I told the nurse this and um, I just fully expected the nurse to communicate this information to the psychiatrist. Um, but was very disappointed to find out that um, they didn't heed what I had said. He did not go to the first psychosis program, which he should have gone to. He went to general psychiatry. And I ended up, um, you know, having several conversations with the psychiatrist there. And he would say, well, tell me, what is the proof that he has a, you know, a psychotic illness? So I, you know, it was not a, a very pleasant experience. When he was finally discharged, he went, he was referred to a number of community agencies. I did not know which agencies. Um, I was not able to find out because of privacy legislation. And um, so I felt very helpless. I couldn't support my son. Uh, I didn't know uh, what uh, programs he had been referred to. And it turned out he didn't go to any of them. 
he also was referred back to his intern, the intern that had originally referred him to this psychiatric hospital at the family clinic where my son was, uh, you know, he attended. And, you know, if my son had been diagnosed with cancer, he would not have been referred back to an intern. So that's very, that was very kind of upsetting. So um, the intern actually turned out to be very nice. And he did refer him to a psychiatrist in that hospital. But again, that, um, that appointment turned out to be a disaster. The psychiatrist did not listen to me and would not take my uh, son on as a, a patient, even though he was exhibiting signs of illness again. So that experience, and then of course, there was a whole journey of trying to find the appropriate services, uh, finding a psychiatrist, the whole, the whole package was, it was just so upsetting uh, that I sat down one day and I said, this is not good enough. Something has to change. So I wrote a letter to the Toronto Star and for some reason it got immediately published and that put me in touch with other advocates. And I had the, the just very affirming experience of being in touch with people like Marvin Ross and Susan Inman and some of these great advocates that have, you know, really uh, plowed the way into trying to make it a better mental health system. So that's how I began my advocacy. Woo, thank you for, for sharing that. There's a, uh, you certainly have had uh, a struggle uh, in many ways, and uh, but then some luck with the reaching out uh, the Toronto Star. So glad to hear that. So you've, you started telling the story with your son, but what what typically happens when someone starts exhibiting mental illness? Um, you know how how is care sought? Um, and you, you compared it to someone who had cancer or say broke a leg. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that with young men, the illness, a uh, psychotic illness, expresses itself in the mid teens to the mid twenties. Uh, with young women. Uh, that uh, the illness uh, expresses itself a little bit later. So young women have more of a healthy life before they become ill. But what usually happens, the behaviors that really are red flags are um, isolation or uh, profound depression, um, uh, lack of hygiene, uh, bizarre behavior, which is driven by unrealistic thoughts. I won't go into detail there, but, you know, that really stands out. There's something wrong, you know. And so that's how, um, you know, you're finding out that something's wrong. Now, how care is accessed, unfortunately, much care is accessed through emergency because you're in a crisis, the person's taken to hospital, hopefully that person is, uh, you know, hospitalized and hopefully upon discharge, connected to community services. So that is the ideal situation. Unfortunately, um, there's not enough beds um, to address the needs of those with severe mental illness. Beds are continually being closed. Um, there's not enough supportive housing in the community. There's not enough community support. So that is the reality right now in terms of a person who has a severe mental illness. So there are not the services needed to for people with mental health issues. There's not the, the beds. Uh, what about uh, trained professionals? Well, thank you for asking that question. 
we don't have enough psychiatrists that will treat people with severe mental illness. Yes, there's not enough psychiatrists to uh, address the needs of people with severe mental illness. Um, mental health services really need to be directed to the most severely mental ill. That is not happening. It happens in other areas of medicine, but not in the mental health sector. You'll get funding that goes to other programs, but they're not people who have severe mental illness. So you're saying there is funding, the um, powers that be can say, yes, we do fund support mental health and they do this, this and this, but it's not for people that are the most severe cases. They take the easier ones. Is that how you'd interpret it? Yes, that's a very good interpretation. Unfortunately, mental health services fund programs that are the people who have moderate pro problems. They don't fund uh, programs where people have severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. They're closing hospital beds. They're not providing supportive housing. You know, that's what's happening. Plus, mental health legislation needs to address issues such as anosognosia, which it does not do right now. So therefore, a lot of people don't get don't get service that okay, we you, need it. So you, that mentioned abs you mentioned something, what was that word again? Can you say it close, uh, clearly? I think I'll put it, I'll put it in the podcast notes. Yeah, the, the term is anosognosia, which is a symptom of uh, serious mental illness. It's also a symptom of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, but and it, the symptom basically has the person not appreciate that they have an illness. Now, people with Alzheimer's and dementia who have this symptom are treated with care and respect and protectiveness. A person um, who has bipolar disorder or schizophrenia and exhibits this symptom where he, has no, he or she has no insight is abandoned by the system. And I think today uh, we are all aware of the, of the situation with Andrew Brienton, who is a PEI man who has been wandering the streets of the GTA for the last 10 months. He's been taken to hospital three times on a form two and um, the hospital has released him without treatment because he said, I don't want treatment. So he's been allowed to be discharged and um, everybody's following that. I, I know that Minister Tibolo's office is following it. They know very well what's happening with this uh, with this man, uh, but nobody's doing anything, you know. And he's right in the public eye. He's on Facebook all the time. There's been several news articles about him in the Globe and Mail and in the Star. Uh, so we're all aware, you know, it's right out there that this man is deteriorating in front of our eyes. And nobody's making a move uh, to, um, you know, have him be medically transferred to the PEI, where his psychiatrist is waiting to treat him. It, under the Ontario Mental Health Act, there's a provision there that allows the Minister of Health to enact that transfer, and that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's pure cowardice. Really, it's just not acceptable mm -hmm. uh, to see this man deteriorate, and nobody's doing anything. The people that are responding are the people of Toronto that have given him clothing and food and, and support, but the the system is not responding. Yeah. Ooh, that is a hard story to hear about. 
and uh, that that was the only thing I wanted to talk to you. You sort of led into it, is the issue of uh, privacy um, that uh, you can't uh, you can't make somebody get treatment, and the family does not need to be uh, told and involved. So, that's really two questions, but I think they're interrelated. So, I would say that the first question is about. Um, uh, the legislation, well, actually, privacy legislation is um, is sort of separate from uh, the Mental Health Act. But um, with privacy legislation, there's all sorts of ways in which you can get information from the service provider without compromising the individual's um, right to privacy. And that has actually, that is available if, if you were to look at the guidelines from the Mental Health Commission of Canada that came out in 2013, there's a way of the family getting information that's necessary. Unfortunately, these guidelines were not implemented. Now, getting back to the Ontario Mental Health Act and legislation, I we're talking with Andrew. Uh, he was released because he was deemed not a... Um, a danger to himself or others. Now, the thing of it is, he clearly is a danger to himself because he's been seen walking up off ramps towards oncoming traffic. He's almost been run over a couple of times. So, you know, why he would not be considered a danger to himself, I'm really perplexed. And um, so, you know, we need to firm up some of these, uh, some of these, you know, this legislation because here is a man that's clearly in danger and he's making a mockery of our current legislation. Hmm. You are one who really advocates for uh, allowing families to be involved in the care, the treatment of someone with mental health, severe mental health issues. Can you talk about that? Um, the family has to be involved we are the ones that are on site. In fact, um, somebody, a Dr. Fuller Tory from the Treatment Advocacy Center basically said that the only people that understand psychosis are the people that have had psychosis or have psychosis and the family who that person is living with. He had a sister with schizophrenia, so he's speaking from you know, experience. We have so much knowledge, and one of the resources in the mental health system that is so abused is the input of families. It is critical that they hear from us, and they do not. And unfortunately, we have to suffer the consequences, and our loved ones have to suffer the consequences of not being heard. I uh, am involved with a couple of advocacy groups, and I've heard from other mothers that um, uh, that they are the sole person, the sole reason why their loved one is alive because of their advocacy. Uh, their their loved one would, you know, not be alive or may be doing poorly, but because of their intervention, that is what's really made the difference. And we really need for the mental health system to learn this, that we have so much to offer and stop cutting us off and treating us the way that you are, because it's not helping Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's sad to hear. And I do hope change happens. And again, thank you for all your advocacy work. 
Now, there really seems to be three parts to care for someone with a mental health issues. You have your pharmaceutical care. We There are great medicines to help people. You need counseling and the family support, and you need community support. So um, is that sort of a proper summation of what's needed? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you do need medication. Unfortunately, medication doesn't address all of the symptoms. And so therefore, you do need uh, you do need ongoing um, supportive counseling. You really need some individual in your life that listens to you. That is so important. Um, and then you need family. Uh, you, you know, you need to be part of a family. Uh, it's so, I mean, who would not want to be part of a family? So the family really has to be there and engaged. Families, um, you know, are also very challenged because uh, they're bewildered by the symptoms and um, and they're not necessarily treated but with respect. So, but we really need to have a really holistic approach to, to mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people that are homeless are those with mental health issues, correct? The untreated mental health issues. That's correct. There's about 30 to 40% of people with untreated mental illness out there. And that statistic comes from the community, the homeless hub. Yeah, homeless hub. And uh, actually, if you were to add addictions to that um, situation, it could be as many as 70% of people with uh, mental illness, untreated mental illness, are in the homeless population. Yeah, that's... Quite sad. I see it as uh, we've uh, not used. When I see someone who's homeless, I just see it. it we've uh, failed. It's a lack of potential. That person probably could offer a lot to society, to their family, if proper care um, was was offered. So, yeah, it's when you see someone that's homeless, don't uh, have some sympathy, yes. have some compassion. Yeah. 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 And so in a perfect world, how would those with mental health receive services? Well, let me just um, say that right now we're spending services on homeless outreach, homeless shelters, emergency calls, ambulance calls, etc. That's a lot of money. If you put the same money into increasing the hospital beds so that people can stay there long enough to get well, putting supportive housing in the community, then that would be win-win because you'd have healthy people and, you know, and every, you know, should have a fairly meaningful and healthy life. Right now, the people who are making decisions seem to prefer putting the resources into homeless, um, homeless shelters and homeless outreach programs. So I'd like to see a change in that. So- Ideally, what, what would you like to see? So someone, you know, like your son who in his teens got sick, what yeah. ideally would happen? Well, uh, first of all, in my dream would be for people to have mental illness literacy. What's happening right now is a lot of people are not aware of the symptoms of mental illness. Now, if people had mental illness literacy, uh, it would be a better world for him. Uh, there'd be less stigma, uh, there would be more effective services. So what I would like to see is him having access to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist being um, willing to talk to the family. Um, 
if he is to be hospitalized, that he stay there until he's well. Upon discharge, I'd like to see him being discharged to a high support, supportive housing uh, organization. That's that's what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. And I'd like the mental health legislation to be realistic and address symptoms like anosognosia, which is a lack of insight into the illness. So that is the ideal situation for me. Okay. No, thank you for sort of making a list of that. And uh, we'll hope you take that to your uh person in our MPP and those in the healthcare profession and say, this is what we need to do. So uh, thanks for that. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Yes. I'd like to talk about medical assistance in dying. Um, This program will be available to people whose sole purpose, sole reason is a mental illness. This will happen in March of 2024. And the government is going to allow this at that time and there's a lot of controversy a lot of discussion has taken place about they really need to fine-tune that before they implement that policy uh, there's been a big research project at CAMH that has involved uh, uh, patients and family caregivers uh, that have looked into all the nuances it's not a black and white issue and it's causing people a lot of concern one of the major observations is Will a person choose made services and and access uh, this program in order because his his or her life is so miserable because he doesn't have supportive housing, he doesn't have a psychiatrist, he doesn't have proper medication. So so this is a big issue that we're all going to be sort of focused on in as we move forward. Ooh, that is a power, uh, strong little uncomfortable thing to think about but thank you for uh, bringing that up okay because march of 2024 is not that far from now long it's coming soon so okay um kathleen i will add things to the our podcast notes and um and how to spell that word that you said i'm not even going to try to say it again but it's an important word i do end all podcasts asking the same question of all guests Name one thing you really like about this community. Well, I've lived in this community since 1981, and I have noticed it evolve. And one of the things that I've really noticed is uh, it's become more inclusive and it's very accepting of diversity. And I'm so proud, you know, that that this, you know, like, you know, every so often I'll see uh, the mayor um, you know, visit a, a particular cultural group or, you know, um, Godwin Chan uh, doing the same thing and various uh, counselors, you know, uh, showing up in, you know, in different uh, communities. And I just think it's just wonderful. Uh, you know, like as we evolve, we're becoming more inclusive and, and appreciative of our diverse community. So I yeah. guess that's it. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very good one. So, yes, it's uh, on this uh uh, weekend we're having thanksgiving and uh we can be thankful for for all of that uh, is happening so again uh kathleen thank you very much for speaking to, with me giving us this, these insights and uh so much to think about so uh, yeah. thank you again thank you for listening i would very much appreciate you sharing this podcast please tune in next week as we continue to explore the community Consider emailing me at marj, M-A-R-J, at marjandre.com. 
I welcome suggestions for podcast guests. Stay well, stay connected. <laughs>